Last week, we began our series in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. I tried to instill in you an appreciation of this great man of God, Ezra. I also introduced you to Cyrus the Great and the prophecies of Jeremiah, which encouraged Daniel so much. We saw that history unfolds exactly the way God says it will. There is nothing that takes him by surprise and nothing he cannot handle. He allows and even causes turmoil in our lives with the purpose of drawing us back to himself. We closed with Daniel's prayer from Daniel 9 in which we humbled ourselves before God and confessed our sin. But we did this with hearts full of hope, looking forward to what he will do in our lives, even through the current pandemic. Today we will look at the entire first chapter of Ezra. I draw some parallels to our lives today, but I think I do so under good authority from God's word. I am not allegorizing Ezra. This really took place in history. But I do try to draw out some eternal principles from this chapter. Let's read Ezra chapter 1 together. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the freewill offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Then the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, with all whose spirits God had moved, arose to go up and build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And all those who were around them encouraged them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with precious things, besides all that was willingly offered. King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and put in the temple of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, brought them out by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer, and counted them out to Shezbazar, the prince of Judah. This is the number of them, 30 gold platters, 1,000 silver platters, 29 knives, 30 gold basins, 410 silver basins of a similar kind, and 1,000 other articles. All the articles of gold and silver were 5,400. All these Shezbazar took with the captives who were brought from Babylon to Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful this morning again for uh, the beautiful weather you have given to us. We are grateful that we can gather here uh, in whatever way um, we can and that those uh, that desire can take part through the internet connection and I just ask that each person 
that is taking part in this message this morning, that we would be convicted by your word, that we would be lifted up, edified, encouraged by your word this morning, that we can go out into a very, very dark world and make a difference this week. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. I've titled today's message simply, The Decree of Cyrus the Persian. God, it says, stirs the heart of Cyrus to make a decree. Nebuchadnezzar conquered Judah around 606 to 608 BC. We're not entirely sure of the year, but it's right in there somewhere. Cyrus sent the Jews home in somewhere between 536 and 538 BC. The first year of Cyrus' reign then was 70 years after the first time that Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar also took away captives, among whom were Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, more commonly known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Through Jeremiah, God warned Israel of their captivity and foretold their deliverance. We read some of this last week, but we'll have a, a brief view of parts of it today here. In Jeremiah 25, the Lord declared, because the people had turned from him to serve other gods, that he would bring against them Nebuchadnezzar, who would take them into captivity. So I'll read a couple verses there in Jeremiah 25. And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will come to pass, when 70 years are completed, that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord. And I will make it a perpetual desolation. Also from Jeremiah 29. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. So if you take your calculator and you do a little bit of math with the dates that I gave you, what you'll find is from the year that Nebuchadnezzar took the first captives to the year that Cyrus uh, decreed that they were to go home was 70 years. Why? 70 years. Did God just randomly determine 70 years rather than some other number like 78 or 104? That's not how God operates. There is always a lesson to be learned, maybe especially in times of trouble. Hear God's word through Moses to Israel almost a thousand years before the events we're talking about. Exodus 23. Six years you shall sow your land and gather in its produce. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat. And what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. In like manner you shall do with your vineyard and your olive grove. So we see that God had commanded through Moses that every seventh year the people of Israel were to let the land rest. They were not to be 
um, growing crops on it. Whatever grew naturally was for the poor and the animals, but they were not to be out there growing things specifically. Then to Leviticus 25. Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give you, then the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruit. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard. If they would not obey the voice of the Lord, this is what he goes on to say in Leviticus 26. I will scatter you among the nations and draw out a sword after you. Your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate and you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall rest. For the time it did not rest on your Sabbath when you dwelt in it. By God's accounting, the land that he gave to his people had missed 70 Sabbaths. That's 490 years. There are several ways scholars have attempted to find these 490 years, and I'll just quickly give you three. If you don't like history, just tune out for the next two or three minutes. The first is from the institution of the yearly Sabbaths, to when the kingdom of Israel and Judah were divided after Solomon's reign is about 490 years. Divide that by seven and you get 70 years of captivity. Another way is from the time Israel rejected God as their king and installed King Saul to the time Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem is also about 490 years. Divide that by seven and you get 70 years of captivity. The third way, Israel and Judah had a long line of good and evil rulers and kings throughout their history in the Promised Land. There is no record of who kept the annual Sabbaths and who did not, so God kept track. The point here is not the math. The point is that it was not arbitrary. There are difficult things we go through in life that seem arbitrary. This time in, his, in the history of the Jews is not one of them. As an aside regarding this topic, Jesus himself cautions those that are always looking for some specific sin behind suffering, and he plainly declares that not all pain is a result of personal sin. Let's read Luke chapter 13 and the first five verses. There were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. This passage is so powerful. Jesus is teaching them 
that they should take their eyes off others when it comes to sin. We have plenty to look at when we look at our own lives. Your sin will condemn you to an eternity of suffering unless you repent. We so often and so easily have a plank in our own eye. When we start pointing out that it is personal or national sin that causes suffering, we take the world's eyes off God and his work in Christ and place it on ourselves and our own self-righteousness. Unless God has laid out plainly and specifically in his word that he is punishing sin by his sovereign hand, we have no business making judgment calls in the pretense that we alone know what God is thinking. In the past, as well as in the present pandemic, when well-meaning Christian people tell others that God is punishing us through a tsunami or earthquake or tornado or some other natural disaster, the focus is taken off Christ and placed on the person declaring to know the mind of God, usually with derision. They may be right and they may be wrong. It is when Christians show the love of Christ by helping those that are suffering as a result of some <clears throat> terrible tragedy that our Savior is magnified and people are drawn toward God. Back to Ezra. So Cyrus made this decree, set all the people free. Sadly, only a small percentage decided to return from exile. There were two main returns from Babylonian captivity to Judah. This is the first. Ezra was part of the second return that we can read about over in Ezra chapter 8. Archaeological evidence suggests that although there were two large returns, there, seems, there seemed to be a trickle of Jews back to Jerusalem over the next many decades. Because Cyrus is referred to as anointed one in Isaiah chapter 45 verse 1, I would like to draw a principle from the release of the Babylonian captives as a reminder and a warning. First, as a reminder, let's read Isaiah 45, 1 and 2 to get the context. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. This word anointed or anointed one is the Hebrew word Mashiach, from which we get the word Messiah. As I mentioned in my last message, Cyrus is the only non-Jew to be given this title in all of Scripture. This, along with many other parallels in this passage, cause me to believe that I am not reading into Scripture when I say that the end of the Babylonian captivity is a type or a picture of salvation in Christ. I'll briefly give you a couple more reasons I believe this, so you can study them this week for yourself. The first reason, 
the release of the Babylonian captives has strong parallels to the exodus from Egypt, plainly a picture of salvation. Number two, in Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist quotes from Isaiah 40, describing the work of the coming Messiah, part of which was to make the crooked places straight. With that, let's continue. Cyrus comes along and makes a decree that all the Jews that so desire are set free and can return to Jerusalem. Jesus, when he came, made a decree that he came to set the captives free. Listen closely for the parallels as I read Luke chapter 4, 16 through 21. So Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. But even though they have been set free by Cyrus, a majority of the Jews chose to stay in captivity. Perhaps they didn't like change. Perhaps they were comfortable in Babylon and would rather have a comfortable captivity than an uncomfortable liberty. Perhaps the journey from Babylon to Jerusalem was too daunting to undertake. Perhaps they had a desire to go, but family members convinced them to stay. I don't know what kept them back. But it is estimated that only about 4 to 5% of the Jews returned to their homeland. Christ has come and offered to set us all free. But so many, for a host of reasons similar to what I've just listed, choose to remain in captivity. I believe in Christianity because it is true, and I think that it can be demonstrated to be true. I don't believe in Christianity because it works, although it does. I don't believe in Christianity because it gives me emotional support, although it does that too. I don't believe in Christianity because I was brought up in a Christian home, although I was. I believe in Christianity because God exists and Jesus lived, died, and rose again to free me from the captivity of sin. The gospel doesn't promise that everything is going to be easy once we start our journey. If that were the case, People might pay lip service to Christ just to make their lives easier. It would be a feeble message to a feeble mind. 
the entire message would be so watered down that it would no longer be the gospel. I'm afraid this is the I'm okay and you're okay type of message preached by men like Joel Osteen. Or just as bad, maybe worse, the prosperity message preached by Bill Johnson. A feeble message to a feeble mind. People accept a message like this and they feel good all the way to the gates of hell. Just like the captives that left Babylon for Jerusalem, the journey will likely be difficult. You may have to give up certain comforts or friends or even family, but it will be more than worth it. Listen to the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Think for a moment of what Paul is calling light affliction, also from 2 Corinthians. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. And we think we are persecuted when somebody disagrees with us. Paul's life may not have been a lot of things, but one thing it was, was an adventure. In embracing Christ, you enter an adventure that leads home. You enter a story that is thousands of years old. You enter a purposeful life that will have consequences that echo into eternity. You enter into a relationship with the creator of the universe that fulfills the very purpose for which you were created. And his son, Jesus Christ, God in flesh, has set you free from sin and invited you home if you will only acknowledge your sin and trust him. Those that did return to Jerusalem were encouraged. Though the returning exiles were a minority, they were a spirit-stirred minority. They were dedicated to the difficult and discouraging task of returning to a ruined city and once there to build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. The journey itself was long, dangerous, and expensive, and they had many enemies. We can imagine that many of those who decided to stay in their lands of exile still were happy that others were going to build the house of the Lord and wanted to support that work. Good for you, they might have said. It's not really something for me, but I'm glad you're going. And they gave them gold and silver and other valuables for their trip, 
Does this remind you of how the Israelites plundered the Egyptians when they left Egypt? It should. Ezra purposely constructed his first chapter like this. The lesson in both accounts is the same. It wasn't until their choice to leave Babylon resulted in the work of rebuilding that the enemies showed up, which we'll look at in the weeks to come. If you live as a secret Christian, if that's possible, if your choice to follow Christ doesn't actually result in work being accomplished with his blessing, you may get away without being persecuted and even may be encouraged for just taking the journey. But once you undertake the work for which you were called, as sure as the sun rises in the east, you will face opposition. The New Testament is clear about this as well. Finally, the end of the chapter. Cyrus not only releases the prisoners, he returns the articles of the house of the Lord. When Jerusalem was conquered, the remaining treasures of the temple were taken to Babylon. I wish I could take you back in time to our series together in the book of Daniel. We talked about these same vessels that were taken 70 years earlier. We talked about how they had value because God gave them value. No Jew would ever have sold them for any amount of money. They were beyond price because they were sacred. This was still true of these vessels. Time had not diminished their value. They were created for a purpose and would not fulfill their purpose until they were back where they belonged. Like you and like me. So much more could be said. The careful count of the returned articles shows how valued they were and how carefully they were treated. What is conspicuously missing from the list is any mention of the more significant articles of the temple. What happened to the altar of incense, the table of showbread, the brazen altar, the golden lampstand, and especially the Ark of the Covenant? These articles were presumably lost to history at the destruction of the temple by the Babylonians. But every item was precious. One theologian put it like this, quote, Had they not been things of great price and use, they would not have been numbered. Men do not count how many pebbles they have in their yard or piles of grass in their field, as they do how many coins in their purse or sheep in their fold. Unquote. I'll close with this thought to any of you that may be discouraged. You are precious to God. He created you in his own image, and therefore you have infinite value. The world will try to tell you that you are a mere descendant of some ape-like primate, and if you believe that lie, the deepest part of you will believe you don't have purpose or value, whether you acknowledge it or not. But it is a lie. You are created in the image of God, and you have purpose and value. 
Nothing can diminish your value in the eyes of God. You might say, but I'm a filthy vessel. Is gold any less valuable when it is still in the ground or covered with dirt? Allow God, through the work of Jesus on the cross, to clean you up. Admit to him that you are an unclean vessel and ask him to remove the dirt. He longs to clean you up and restore you to that purpose for which he created you. But he won't do it without your consent. Jesus is kind and gentle and will wait for you to ask. Won't you ask today? Let's pray. Father in heaven, this passage written so long ago still impacts us so powerfully today. The nature of mankind hasn't changed. And your nature hasn't changed. We still need you to clean us up. To make us useful, to give us purpose. We still need to respond to that invitation to come home to leave the captivity. We thank you so much that you have encapsulated these truths into the story that Ezra was writing here, and that they just encourage us in a, in a refreshing way to seek the Savior anew again today. When I think back to when I became a Christian, for years and years and years before I actually became a Christian, I thought I was a Christian. And it wasn't until you truly got a hold of me and transformed me that I began to move forward with the Lord. And I'm afraid there may be many out there listening that think they are Christians, and yet prayer and being in God's Word and Seeing the word, the world from your point of view is not something that they experience day by day. I pray that you would get a hold of our hearts through this passage today from your word. I thank you for this. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.